I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. A home is where love resides, where memories are created, where friends belong, and laughter never ends. A house might be made of bricks and mortar, but it's also made of dreams and hopes. But above and over all that, for people with disabilities, a home can become a sanctuary and a place where, at least in theory, there are few, if any, barriers. However, the road to home ownership can be long and winding, just about for anybody. And if you have a disability, like most things in life, buying a home can get that much more complicated when unanticipated problems arise and then you have additional considerations in terms of location, proximity to services and amenities, and the accessibility of the home itself. Today, we discuss disability and home ownership. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joyita Gupta and I'm joining you from Accessible Media Studios in Toronto. Now, I am really excited and a little sad to be wrapping up our mini-series exploring disability and housing. I have mixed feelings about it. I'm excited because we have a great guest, but I'm sad because, well, all good things must come to an end. My guest today is Angela Fox. Angela is the host of the Accessibility is Home podcast and the author of the book, My Blue Front Door, How a Wheelchair User Bought a Home During the Recession. Angela, hello and welcome to The Pulse. I'm really delighted to have you with us. Well, thank you. I am absolutely excited. I'm always thrilled to hear other podcasters talking about uh, disability, home ownership, housing for the disabled, because it is a much needed topic. So I am just thrilled to be invited, even though I'm in the States, you know, Canada's just uh, our next door neighbor. So I'm excited. Angela, your book is called My Blue Front Door. Why did you pick My Blue Front Door as your title? Yeah, I get that question a lot. And it, uh, I kind of talk about it a little bit in the preamble, but uh, I did it because so much of accessibility as far as the symbolism is that handicap uh, sign, which is a, you know, a blue and white wheelchair for handicap parking. It's an international symbol. And unfortunately, even my closest friends, when I was looking and buying a home, was shocked uh, to find that there was no accessible house that I could buy. That I would have to do so much, uh, so much modifications. And when I asked them, like, why, why do you not know that? You know, you've known me for so many years. Um, and they literally said, well, you know. We see all the handicap signs everywhere and in businesses and parking that they just assume that there would be legal requirements for accessible housing to buy. And so it was just a nod as far as the title goes to say that, you know, even though you see the symbolism of the handicap sign, in reality, not everything is accessible. So that's why I named it you know, that title. You, you make a really interesting point because in America, you've had the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, for well over 30 years now. If you look at places like Norway and Australia, they do have standards for accessible housing. Why have we fallen behind? And I say we because I think, you know, your experience in America lines up with the experience of many people with disabilities in Canada, where things that claim to be accessible aren't actually accessible, including housing. So where is the gap? The gap is actually a legal gap. So what most people don't realize 
is that the ADA does not apply to private housing. The ADA applies to businesses, things that are open to the public, transportation, employment. It does not apply to unsubsidized housing, meaning housing that's being built without a state or federal government. So in essence, if I made a new home, if I built a new home and I was going to sell it, nothing has to be uh, based on the ADA accessible as long as I don't get government funding. Um, and then on top of that, we do have the Fair Housing Act. The Fair Housing Act was actually established, you know, in the 60s. It's for discrimination, but disability was not included in the Fair Housing Act, even though it was passed in the late 60s, until 1988. And, and the reason why 1988 is so important is that the ADA was passed in 1990. And I actually do... Uh, I have an episode where I talk about how the Fair Housing Act amendment that included disabilities in 1988 actually said, actually made it apparent to the disability community in the United States that it is a civil rights issue because the Fair Housing Act is actually part of the Civil Rights Act. It's not the Fair Housing Act, even though we talk about it as a standalone act, it's not. It's part of the 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act of the United States, and it's just a clause that talks about fair housing. It's not a separate thing. And so when the disability community was finally included in the 1964 Act um, and, and included in the clause about fair housing, that really told us we are now a minority group that has civil rights issues, and that actually helped the ADA get passed in 1990. But the reason why it was so behind is because it was passed before the ADA, which is far more expansive. It really uh, does, you know, consider a lot of different things. So not only was it passed before, it was very limited because of that, meaning it was just if, if you have uh, units, uh, housing units out four or more, then you had to have so many barrier-free modifications included. And barrier-free, just by the name, kind of tells you that it's really just pretty much access into the building or access into the apartment or condo. It's not including people who might need modifications for visual impairment, those who are on the spectrum, hearing impaired, all those things really are not necessarily included if you look what the barrier-free modifications of the uh, Fair Housing Act requirement is. And then again, it's four or more units that are built after 1989. Um, and what that, that means, that means single-family housing, because it's not a unit, is not required to be barrier-free, even in the limited circumstances. So that's why we're behind, because the law just, there's no law right. that's adequate. Right. And, you know, I had a guest on the program last week uh, talking about how we need to really get be get away from this idea that we just should have accessible homes. She said what we really should be aiming for are homes that are universally designed. Do you think we're there yet when you look back on your own experience of, of finding a home and then, of course, you go on to renovate your home? What is it going to take for us to get to a place where 
we have homes that are universally designed where we're not just checking boxes and saying, okay, we've got a ramp, we've got a shower rail, but really getting past that that checkbox and that that checklist mentality and looking at creating homes that are truly universally designed so that people can live in their homes for the duration of their lives. Even if you're not disabled now, you might be 20 years down the road. Yeah, and I actually would kind of push back about the universal design only only because it's very important and I talk a lot about but um, I think what we need to focus on is living in place. So I'm a certified living in place, and there's a wonderful institution in the United States called the Living in Place Institute. And what it does is focuses on three things, children's safety, universal design for the disabled, and aging in place. So it's a very encompassing uh, perspective of when you're talking about housing. And the reason why I think that's so important is at the end of the day, the disability community can say, hey, what we build can be used by anybody. There's still that stereotype. There's still not that what is the market value for the housing developers, for advocates or anybody to say we need accessible housing because the disability community is so considered the other. So living in place says, hey, you need to design homes that focus on children's safety. So that means parents will be interested in, obviously the disability community through universal design, and then aging in place um, for the elderly or for those who have you know, um, some medical needs but may or may not rise to a disability yet. And so I really think if we stop siloing ourselves as, as if we're not part of the housing market, I think it's a way to get over that threshold. And then last, we're not counted. Um, I can't find any stats outside of the elderly that says this is how many people who are disabled that own their own home. We're not even researching it in, in the United States. It's just, well, so many people who are elderly own their homes. And that's the closest data that we really have to kind of measure what is home ownership look like for the disability community. Well, I know of at least one person in the United States who owns her own her own home, and that is Angela Fox. Angela, what led you down the road to home ownership? Was it something that was aspirational, like you always knew you wanted to buy your own place, or did it become something uh, that you almost came to out of necessity when rental accommodations weren't really working out? A, a little bit of both. Um, to be perfectly honest, um, I was born, my disability, you know, paraplegic, I was born, uh, in 82. So before the ADA and, you know, uh, while a lot of things have improved, my housing situation really did it outside of what my parents did. And I was very fortunate because my father was a mechanical and electrical engineer. So he could, he could build me anything I needed as far as the home modification. And, but what really kind of made me go over the threshold was the fact that my uh, living cost for an apartment was extremely expensive. Um, I lived in the D.C. area, and then the housing market crashed. And I honestly saw a wonderful opportunity because one thing I was very concerned about, like many of us, is, well, can I afford, you know, if I can afford the house, can I afford the modification? And the and and, and there, there was this little sweet spot. Unfortunately, a lot of people lost their homes, and my heart breaks out to to them. 
But for me, I could buy a house that normally would be difficult to buy before the recession, and therefore all the additional savings I had, um, I could actually use for modification. And then there was also some very unique programs in the state of Maryland that also allowed me um, to afford the modification and the home buying experience. So it just kind of all lined up. And I will tell you all my friends and family were like, well, you know, why are you getting a house? You know, meaning can I maintain it? All those stereotypes. And then when I told them I was paying $2,000 a month for a one-bedroom apartment and I could buy a home that was slightly bigger for fourteen or $1,500, suddenly they're like, oh my gosh, I understand why now you're buying. You know, you, you could hire people to come in and clean your home, mm-hmm. you know, when you're saving, you know, four to $600 a month. Mm-hmm. And also you mentioned in the book uh, that you were having trouble with getting that accessible unit. You know, there were you needed a, a, an accessible van, a parking spot, and that wasn't available, even though the landlord said they'd get to it and they never, they never get to it. And another apartment, you said the washroom was accessible, but the kitchen was not. So one of the reasons I suppose it was attractive to buy your own home is you can modify it to your own specifications. So not just what would work for a person in a wheelchair, but what would work for Angela. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, that really was it. Um, although when I saw it designing, because, you know, I wanted to make sure the market value of the home was maintained, because for me, it was also an investment. You know, we all hear about generational wealth through real estate. And so for me, it was, can I design it for that meets my needs, but would be universally designed, you know? Um, and that way I knew I would be devaluing the home if I needed to, to sell it. But certainly um, crawling, I, I tell you, the number one modification that was on my list was the bathroom. <laughs> because, you know, I literally had to crawl into the bathtub. I really wanted to be able to soak because I have scoliosis. So I have a lot of aches and pains. So a shower um, may keep me clean. It would help me with the pains that I would have. And, you know, I was getting older. I was 30. And climbing in and out was starting to get a little bit of a problem. Uh, my ego was there. And so the bathroom was the first thing on my bucket list. So certainly modifications probably that was successful to me was a very attractive. And a side note, because I um, owned the home, outside of zoning, specific zoning things, um, I could do whatever I want. Um, it didn't have to be the... ADA standards because it was a business. So it really provided me the freedom that I would have got far more than if I rented in an apartment or even low-income housing. Mm -hmm. So I'm reading your book and I'm blown away by the detail. You've talked about the laws and we, we touched on it earlier in our conversation and you talk about all these great financial aid programs and on and on it goes. And I think to myself, this is terrific. What am I going to talk to Angela about? Because none of the supplies in Canada. And then I realized that what the book is really talking about is setting out an approach, if you will, for people with disabilities who might want to buy their home. Now, I realize it might be a bit of a tall order to ask you to summarize the entire book in a couple of minutes, but what would you say is your approach? Uh, that you advocate for people with disabilities who want to buy their own home? Yeah, it, it is a lot, but I would say um, being knowledgeable and empowerment will be like the two words. And, and, and knowing the landscape that's out there. Um, you know, at that time I was 30 years old, but I really go into, I'm so glad um, 
my voice was heard. I'm I'm thrilled to hear that you said that you you saw that I was trying to give it an approach because at the end of the day, anybody can research the resources that are out there. But how do you systematically go? What are the unspoken barriers that you may face? So I talk about how you need to make sure that you are the expert of your disability. No one else is. Um, I talk about understanding what the laws can and cannot do. Um, understanding that not everything is created equally in the disability community. As far as like some things are focused on one dis disabled versus another disability. Um, and then I talk about how you communicate with your realtors and your contractors. Because at the end of the day, I don't care if it's here in the United States, Canada, or the Netherlands, um, it, people who are in the business of housing don't understand what our needs are, and they do have those stereotypes. And so how do you communicate effectively with all those individuals, um, as well as fundraising and, and managing the move as well. Yeah, it's an interesting idea because, you know, I just sold my, I bought my first home and then I sold it. And I said to my real estate agent, to the seller, I, the selling agent, I said, you know what, this house has been modified to within an inch to suit someone who is visually impaired. And I think that this is a really important piece of information to include on the listing. And she was very dismissive about it. She's a nice person, but she was really dismissive about it, saying, oh, that's just a, a you know, a sub-market. I don't really know if it'll make much of a difference to a potential buyer. How important is it when we think about real estate listings to start including information about accessibility and disability? It's imperative. It is absolutely imperative. It's a waste of, of resources. Um, at the end of the day, realtors should be mindful that they're trying to sell the home. So the more added features, whether it's for disability or not, will only make my make the house accessible. And it just breaks my hear hard to hear that you experience a lot of what I experienced when I was, you know, looking for a home. And it's it's, it's very unfortunate to say the least. But certainly, you need we need to do that. We we need to do that. And my, you know, since I've become a podcaster. Um, one thing I've learned um, is that the, the riches are in the niches. Uh, so if you go to any of the podcasting conferences here in the United States, you know, they really talk about the fact that the more narrow you can get, sometimes you'll be the only voice in that, in that market. And, you know, with people being disabled, being the largest minority, it just boggles my mind to think that whatever accessibility features you have in a home, that it will not be desired by somebody. It's just, it's just, I just don't personally understand outside of, it's just the ignorance. The realtors don't realize that we are the largest minority in the United States and in the world, by the way. The one thing you say in your book, and I wish I thought about it uh, the, the same way when I went to buy my house 17 years ago. Uh, but the one thing you say in your book is how even before you start to think about where you buy and what your budget is, spend two weeks envisioning your ideal home. Uh, write down everything you'd like to have. Why is that process so important? Um, that process is important because I learned that as a conflict coach. My day job, even though I'm a lawyer, I'm a mediator and a uh, conflict coach. And there is a tendency when we're dealing with conflict, and it's just kind of neuroscience, that we think of the worst. 
And there's all kinds of theories why that is, but it's very challenging where we don't know the answer to something to think of it in, in, in a positive light. Like, what is your ideal uh, result? There's always the, the, oh, the negativity, you know, the, the thought of narrowing your scope as far as what's possible because you don't have the answer. It's just, it's just how human nature generally deals with conflict. And so I see that all the time where people say, well, when I become disabled, when I get older, I'll just go into assisted living. And I go, well, why is that? And they, they will say, well, my house is not accessible. I can't make it accessible. I can't maintain it. And I ask them, well, how do you know that? And honestly, they don't. And they just jump to that conclusion. And so when you're dealing with all the, the looking for a house and dealing with realtors, dealing with contractors, you know, um, which I highly encourage dealing with contractors early on before you buy the house, not necessarily afterwards. But when you're dealing with all this, there's a lot of variables and it's really important that you have your North Star, meaning this is what I want. Otherwise, there's a very high probability that you're going to let yourself down and end up buying a home that does not meet your needs because you are stuck in that same idea that everybody else that are talking to you about. All right, look, I started with a predictable question and I'm going to end with a predictable question, which is what advice would you give someone with a disability who is looking to buy their first home? Oh my goodness. Um, definitely do it. Definitely do it. Um, and, and make sure you're doing it in, in baby steps. So don't set yourself low if you're in low income housing right now. Um, certainly, you know, make sure that you are planning ahead, even if you don't know how. Um, it's super, it, it's just imperative because the world is not going to be accessible. Your home should be. So don't sell yourself short. Um, reach out to people that have the resources. I'm certainly available. I do a lot of consulting. Um, you can reach out to me at uh, horizontalhouses.com. Uh, all my information is there. You can read the book. But certainly start mapping it out step by step and really push yourself to get that home. Angela, thank you so much for speaking to me today. It was so great chatting with you about this. Thank you so much for having me. Angela Fox is a podcaster, lawyer, mediator, and the author of My Blue Front Door, How a Wheelchair User Bought a Home in a Recession, which you can catch. Uh, you can get a, There's a Kindle edition of the book, and you can also get a hard copy if that's how you'd like to read. That's all the time we have for today. Like I said, lots of mixed feelings about wrapping up the series about housing and disability. It's near and dear to my heart. Uh, I've had many struggles with housing. I also work in housing. My day job is in a not-for-profit working with tenants. Uh, and very early on, as a young adult, I made a choice to buy my house and to buy my home. And I have to tell you, as a person with a disability, there was a, a moment of unreality there because I spent a lot of time on social assistance, living paycheck to paycheck. And I didn't think at the time that it would ever happen for me, that I would ever get to own my own home. But, uh, you know, the stars aligned, as it were, and I was able to find a, a beautiful place to call my home. So I hope that if homeownership is your dream and you're a person with a disability, you won't shrink from the challenge or discard the dream because it just seems too impossible. As you heard from Angela's story, it is doable. Just take those baby steps. And who knows? 
you might be the proud owner of your own condo or your own home designed to your specifications, a place that you can truly put down roots and call your own. Well, folks, got it run for today. If you have any feedback, if you want to share your housing stories with us, you can give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. Don't forget to leave us permission to play the voicemail on the program. You can also send us an email. I love when people write to us, and it doesn't happen as much as I'd like, but please write to us at feedback at ami.ca. You can also find us on Twitter at AMI-audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI. You can find me on Twitter at Juita Gupta. The videographer for today is Matthew McGurk. Mark Aflalo is the technical producer. Ryan Delahanty is the coordinator for AMI-audio podcasts. And Andy Frank is the indomitable manager for AMI-audio. On behalf of the team, thanks for listening. I've been your host, Chuita Gupta. Enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>